and welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Welcome back to Note Doctors. We're so pleased you've joined us. We have had over 1,000 downloads in February and in March. So we're so pleased with the people who have uh, found this podcast and are listening to it. And if you ever have comments or questions or ideas for a future episode or a future guest, reach out to us. You can find us on Facebook. Um, We love to hear from you. And so Ben, tell us a little bit about our guest for today. Richard Desenord is a music theory professor at Howard University and is currently finishing a Ph.D. in theory at the Eastman School of Music. His research interests include harmony in neo-soul and contemporary gospel, the music of Robert Glasper, pedagogy, and the visualization of music theory. One of his personal and professional goals is to make music theory more accessible to and inclusive of people of color. I feel like the more sinister thing that happens when it when we start to exclude people from this or we look at people as if they aren't capable or smart enough because that's basically what they're saying a lot of times that music theory is on this pedestal if you can't do it then the music isn't sophisticated or something what happens is beyond that being wrong is that people in these very same communities because I've heard this when I was a student at Howard is like music theory isn't for us that we aren't capable of doing that. And when those very same communities start to believe these stereotypes, I believe that's the worst part. Because you can solve all the problems and get these people out of these positions of power and do everything, but if a whole contingent of people believe that their whole cultural group isn't smart enough or worthy enough of this sort of study or to be able to do something on this level, that to me is probably the worst part of most of that stuff. So trying to shift that narrative and bring more people into the fray when it comes not just to the examples we give, but the people who are, uh, who is teaching the stuff, the types of music we study, everything is, is super important. So today our very special guest is Richard Desenord. We are so happy for you to be on our podcast. And we like to just kind of open up asking our guests a little bit about how they got into music theory. You know, how did you end up in this field? You know, if you were to go back in time and tell your tell your ten year old self, you know, R- Richard, you're going to grow up to be a music theorist. You know, what would ten year old <laughs> Richard say to that? Uh, well, seeing as how ten years old is probably maybe a couple years before I decided I liked theory and I wanted to do it, uh, it's not that far uh-huh. off because I decided to do it. Uh, in seventh grade, but I would say if anything, really? yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> I always liked, I, I found something in my parents' house where I was writing all of my scales and like one, four, five progressions and stuff um, in seventh grade. Uh, it was just something because it was wow. uh, my private lesson teacher uh, on a trumpet. He was in the Marine Band. He was teaching me uh, scales, things you'll learn in a regular studio class or something, but what he would do is instead of just saying, okay, here's a F major scale this week, here's a B flat major scale. After he gave me the first one, he gave me the first note to each of the other ones and said, okay, figure out the patterns. And I had to figure out like the whole step, half step thing and do all of that. And from then on, it was just like, wait, like this is everywhere. Like if I build this chord or I invert it, this chord is found like a C major chord can be found in the key of F and this role changes and it's just all this stuff like that. And I've always been a nerd with that sort of like numerology, like numbers stuff. So the fact that this was happening in music, it was just, yeah, it was something that I found to be special. Yeah. And yeah, so if a 10 year old me would just say, hurry up, uh, you know, <laughs> that's it. Let's get to, get, get to the good yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah, get to the seventh grade already. <laughs> so so you went on to uh, Howard University, and but you you got a degree in music education. Yeah, so a lot of schools don't really offer music theory degrees, I mean, period, but especially on a bachelor's level. But, you know, I'm basically from the D.C. area. I grew up in D.C. and Maryland and, you know, went back to Howard for uh, school. 
And yeah, I went to Howard and I knew I wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I knew that was first and foremost. And when I started to tell people, you know, I wanted to, I told my uh, advisor um, with music theory, not technically official advisor, but hey, I wanted to study music theory. And he told me what I had to do and I want to teach in college and everything. He said, you know, get experience teaching uh, in the grade school system, do something like that. It'll be a worthwhile experience. And I knew I wanted to teach, period. So um, went ahead and did the music education thing. And yeah, that's how I ended up at Howard with that. Well, it's funny, both Jen and Ben have bachelor's <laughs> um, degrees in, in music mm-hmm. ed. Um, and so, mm-hmm. and I don't know, varying degrees of success in student teaching. I don't know. I know Jen, you, that was not the best experience for you. It <laughs> went well, but I didn't love it. Oh. <laughs> I was pretty unhappy, even though I had a really good experience and a great cooperating teacher, but I just knew it was not the right age group for me. And I also knew conducting is just like not my thing, which is strange. Lots of musicians really love conducting. And I just didn't. And so, uh, yeah, I knew it was not, I loved being in the classroom, but being in front of a middle school band, less so. So, (laughs) but Music Ed was a great, yeah, it was a great place to start, a great way to get going in this field. Go for it, Ben. I was just going to mention that I actually overlap a little bit with your story as far as studying with a military band trumpet player. Um, that kind of sparked my deeper interest in music. Like I started studying with one of the U S army field band trumpet players when I was in ninth grade. And, you know, I loved it. I never realized there was so much to it, so much depth to, to music and artistry until that point. So, so you were definitely ahead of me seventh grade, no doubt about that. (laughs) But, um, I did grow up in Maryland as well, just like you. So, you know, uh, a lot of my family, lives and works in dc so yeah pretty cool. the area is deep with musicians and different ensembles uh it's really rich with a lot of different traditions not just classical um where you have all the military bands you have the like the top ones you have the sort of lower i don't want to say lower tier but the ones that aren't like the you know the marine the pershing zone and all that other stuff like that uh right. president mm-hmm. zone and everything so yeah there's a lot of uh a lot of knowledge going around the area Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. And so we kind of got you on here because we um, right, we uh, heard your presentation on R&B neo soul music yeah. theory um, uh, presented a few weeks ago. And um, I'm going to I'm going to admit that I was drawn to it because I really love that type. Of, I like Robert Glasper. I love Corey Henry. I love those chords and mm-hmm. like. I was really interested in like how those harmonies worked a few years mm-hmm. ago. And of course I went to YouTube and I found some video is called like playing dirty chords. Yeah. Like that That's was like the like, dirty chords. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to learn this. And it was some, it was a guy with a keyboard with like an animation with the keys and he was playing some kind of looping progression. And oh, I'm wait, like, was what that, is even happening? Was that pretty simple music? The green? What was it? Yes, it yeah, was green. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I'm like, what's happening here? And and I couldn't really understand what was what he was doing. So I actually would pause the video, notate out the mm-hmm. chords that I was reading on the keyboard so I could go back and analyze like all right, so what kind of a substitution mm-hmm. was happening there? And I actually found the Sibelius file yesterday when I was rummaging through, like, oh yeah, I was trying to learn all of these progressions and understand what was going on. And really I like didn't understand most of it. Um, and so <laughs> like, what's, what's happening here? I know theory and it's just like this, like, is he just mashing chords down? I don't know. Um, mm. But your presentation was so thoughtful and illuminating for me because I'm like, okay, now I'm starting to see. And again, it's because I'm working from a framework and you were able to connect with the framework that I was kind of aware with, mm-hmm. aware of. And we'll talk about kind of hopefully a little bit about um, frameworks and how appropriate is it to, mm-hmm. you know, try to put other frameworks on or how to take music at its own terms. But um, I really enjoyed that presentation because it kind of started to allow me to make sense of some of these progressions. Mm -hmm. So maybe talk, give us your like, um, I guess, elevator pitch on what that presentation was about. And, uh, and uh, we'll kind of dive into it. Okay. So 
basically in a nutshell the music theory world has been undergoing sort of like a reckoning as with a lot of other public institutions mm -hmm. where we are starting to see that we've been having this uh, like a skewed view of how music works at least we've been presenting it that way um, a student comes into an institution whether it's a conservatory or public uh, public college or even grade school and you learn music theory f uh, through this lens of basically Western classical music so um, that was always something when I started grad school, you know, I remember the first semester I had a bibliography class and it's, it was like go out and find a bunch of information on something. And I remember even prior to getting to Penn State uh, for my master's, I was like, okay, I want to learn about Mahler. And then I started looking up a bunch of stuff about Mahler and I started noticing it was this guy that they would call the Black Mahler, who was Sammy Coleridge Taylor. and. I started wondering why have I never right. heard of him? Why have I never seen him in these books? Mm -hmm. And I started to look him up and I looked in like the Taruskin, like the big volume mm -hmm. that he has and like a couple of different other books and he was never mentioned. So for me, it was just this mm -hmm. general idea, like fast forward, the more and more I taught in college because this was fall 2014, um, I started to notice more and more examples that I was using was basically just falling on, uh, down the line of just European male composers all the time. And if, you know, you might see a uh, Duke Ellington example or some Scott Joplin piece once in a textbook, but never really coming out. Um, and the students, no matter what their race or background was, they don't just listen to classical music. They listen to a bunch of other things. And mm -hmm. so I was thinking about the fact that I listened to this stuff. I grew up around this sort of music. Um, my parents are Haitian, so by extension, I'm Haitian too. And there's a lot of Caribbean music out there. There's a bunch of things that are just like, mm. these things would probably fall in line with like a tonal sort of framework. And so my friends uh, that uh, do classically black podcasts, uh, Katie Brown, Delaney Harris, um, they said with the organization that they started, the International Society of Black Musicians, they wanted me to just talk. And I said, okay, I'll just talk about some R&B and neo soul. And yeah, I thought it was just an informal sort of thing, like come and talk because we've done little get togethers, happy hour sort of things over Zoom. I thought nothing of it. And I put some things together and my best friend got wind of it. And then she plastered my face everywhere. That's the disclaimer. I don't have <laughs> any social media. I have none. My online presence is literally an email address. Um, so... Good yeah, for you. and I've never used <laughs> yeah. any of it. I've never tried anything like that. So it got to a point where they were, you know, putting it out everywhere. And um, yeah, and then I started, you know, I said, okay, maybe it's going to be a little bit more, maybe five extra people, but let me just try to put more. And as I started going through more and more music, um, I started to think about the fact that I'm teaching a lot of this stuff. Some of those examples were from things I've put in assignments in the past. Um, but I teach at an HBCU and I got to think about the fact that these students mm -hmm. are listening to musics that sometimes embody this sort of uh, Western classical tradition, uh, the Western classical traditions, um, or they might listen to something that's tonal, but what if it doesn't fall along the lines of 5-1? What if it doesn't have that phrase model? How do I explain it to them? And we start going through these things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of it was me just trying to make sure that these students had that they saw themselves in it because I, I'll end with at least this question with this. Uh, someone asked me a few years ago, what would I say to someone who is trying to get into music theory and get into a school for music theory? And I couldn't really make the case for it, not because my school sucked or something like that, but it was more so that <laughs> I feel like I'm more of an anomaly. Like I didn't grow up around classical music. I didn't grow up having someone push it down my throat. It was just something that I liked. And because I also have uh, some limited dexterity with R&B and Neo Soul, and I'm able to figure out from both standpoints, someone who knows no classical music, uh, someone who, uh, or classical theory, uh, formal theory, somebody who knows it, and trying to like bridge that divide and, and have it be uh, more of a communal sort of thing, like everybody can participate rather than, you know, if you understand theory, you don't understand you know, the jazz thing or R&B or soul or anything else like that. I was thinking about Coleridge Taylor. Mm -hmm. um, I I do a little unit on him in my 20th century class. 
or my advanced analysis. It's one of the two like upper level music theory kind of classes. And um, when I first started to work with his music, sometimes I had trouble finding the scores or finding scores that were notated Mm -hmm. um, or finding good recordings. And that's the kind of, that's, you know, one of the basic things we need to fix right there. Like that's one of the things, like there's so much inequality. It's like, you don't know where to start, but when we're trying to use this music, it's apparent immediately um, the distinctions there. And his music is incredible. And there's so much in it that is fascinating and interesting to study. And so it makes you think, like, why are orchestras not playing this music all the time, just like Mahler? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a great, it's, yeah, there's a reckoning that still needs to be happening. And I'm glad it's a conversation we're finally having in, in our field. It's been a long time coming, mm-hmm. I think. Um. Yeah. Can you help us with like some of the distinctions in these terms, R&B, neo-soul, um, some things like that? And you mentioned that the kind of the 5-1 model maybe doesn't work that well. What is a what what's a better starting place? OK, so at least to the first part, I don't think any I don't even think neo-soul artists know if there's a distinction. I feel like there's like this <laughs> big umbrella, right, of artists in the R&B mm-hmm. tradition and it's just like hip hop and then there's trap music or there's gangster rap. There's all these different things. There's pop rap, everything. Um, but those are easier to parse out, right? You can hear something that um, if someone says, okay, this is a trap artist or this is a trap beat, you can kind of hear it. It sounds a certain way or like if you listen to rock and like it's grunge or metal, you can hear these things. With mm-hmm. Neil Soul, the things that I, so far that I've been able to point uh, pinpoint within uh, Neil Soul music is that there's a certain level of intimacy when it comes to chord progressions, not even just like intimacy with regard to lyrics, but um, chord progressions in the way they're voiced and the way they're played. So a lot of times you have upper extensions, um, you have uh, upper extension nines, 11s, 13s on chords. And then in addition to that, a lot of times that uh, the it's not just a loop of the same thing throughout the entire song there you can tell that somebody is like playing that even if they loop maybe four bars instead of one but there's a little bit uh it's a little bit looser in terms of the harmonic structure um sometimes you have a composer they'll put in like a little extra thing in there i'm going to actually let me see if i can yeah if uh you have your keyboard i think it probably will come through i think so you guys tell (laughs) me um can you hear this Okay, cool. So mm-hmm. yep. what they'll maybe yep. do is, let's say it's just a two chord progression and they're just doing something like, uh, if that's classical, you hear this one, four, one. It just keeps doing that over and over. So instead of just doing that same thing over and over again, you might have them play and voice it. And then they keep doing that sort of thing. You'll hear it, uh, the way they voice the chord and play it and inflect it is shifted a lot. Um, and then after that, sometimes you'll hear them put in like a secondary dominant. So instead of just one, you might hear. So they'll play like little things like that. That's one thing I noticed was a big one. And then a, uh, probably the biggest thing I've noticed beyond harmony, beyond you know repetition of chords, is this thing where they play behind the beat. Another name you might hear it, uh, if you look at some uh, people talking about mm-hmm. it, they will call it slugging it or something like that. But they'll play like just behind the beat where if it's like one, two, three, four, you might hear. You hear this sort of like, it's like a, it's purposefully done, but it doesn't sound off. It doesn't sound like if someone comes in a half beat late in a Mahler uh, symphony, you can tell, okay, that person messed up. They're not going to have that chair anymore. <laughs> yep. it's, it's just wrong. Exactly. Unintentional you, solo. If someone comes in yep. too early and thing like that, you can hear it right away. But someone just playing uh, some progression... Mm-hmm. It's just this sort of... Uh, I'm trying. I, one of my biggest problems is trying to find a technical term that someone would really want to see in a theory book. But right. 
Mm. Yeah, and, and, it's, it's, and it, it <laughs> yeah. keeps you off balance, but it feels good at the same time. It feels comfortable. It's that it's, uh, mm. comfortability yeah. And, yeah. and that. But I mean, a lot of tonal music, I was telling my students is that uh, students that my, at least when we talk about tonal music, it's a system uh, that we're comfortable hearing as opposed to post-tonal music where it's built on asymmetry. Like uh, if you look at a, a symmetrical scale, it doesn't sound that pleasing to the ear. But then you look mm -hmm. at a major scale, it's not symmetrical, but it feels more at home than something that, but then you look mm -hmm. at the structure of the music, yeah. a lot of times we build in symmetry and all this. So yeah, that neo-soul uh, R&B sort of thing, those are like three things that I would say I was, I've been able to kind of like parse out from the music that was separated. Now I've seen, I said this in the uh, in the presentation that I saw a source that said John Legend is a neo soul artist. I've never heard him do any of those things that I've mentioned. Um, if he did, maybe it's in a mm. uh, in a live performance. He might do the harmony thing, revoice something. Um, but yeah, I would not classify. I don't think anybody would classify him as a neo soul artist. But it, it mm. yeah. I heard him talk, and he didn't no, classify himself. Not at all. So, <laughs> Live, yeah, so. it's just this weird yeah. thing that sometimes people lump people in those categories. But I would say, if you look out for those like hallmarks and a lot of recordings, you can hear it done in uh, Erica Badu. You can hear it done in D'Angelo's music. You can hear it done in the music of her. Um, some Summer Walker stuff. You know, they kind of go in and out. Some pieces by Jill Scott. That's another one. Um, they will sound like uh, more commercial R&B uh, or closer to that. And sometimes they will sound very much like an independent R&B artist on the same album. So sometimes I'm not so sure if the distinction between the two is as, uh, is as, imp uh, yeah, as important or pertinent to the discussion of what are they doing within the tr larger tradition of R&B. Yeah. Right. Sure. But we're music yeah. theorists. That's what we do. We create categories <laughs> and we separate yeah. Yeah. things out, right? Yeah. So talk a little bit about the the uh, uh, the phrase model kind of idea that we're often presented with in in the classical traditions, and how that model maybe doesn't work so well when you when you started analyzing these musics. Yeah. So I would say I would start off by saying more than likely most tonal music has a five one sort of feeling to it. It has a, a, a moment where you mm -hmm. get to a five and then it resolves to its one. It's a very clear marker because as I also tell my, uh, my freshmen, yes, we're learning this way of how music was created and we're seeing how it kind of changed over time. But if you want to think about uh, the tonal realm, those the best way to establish tonic is not one to four to one. The, like the most definitive way is to have that five one, right? So if you put four one, it sounds ambiguous because one can be, uh, without a seventh on any of them, they sound like one to four or it can sound like four to one, like C to F, for example. Um, but putting in that five chord gives you that. So we look at a lot of music through this lens. We look at it, okay, what types of cadences can we have? All of our cadences are named after this sort of uh, this sort of design. Yeah, during the presentation, I showed that if we mm -hmm. look at the names of cadences, perfect authentic or authentic cadence means that we went through this phrase model five one half cadence. We cut it in half. Deceptive five didn't go to one. So mm -hmm. all of these sorts of things are in, uh, the uh, the what we call the phrase model. This one to something, and then the phrase or the piece ends five one solidifies that. So my thing was like, I look, my dissertation is on contemporary gospel music. And one of the things I'm looking at is the concept of the subdominant and how that kind of reigns supreme over the dominant. Um, and it's almost like a, hmm. or like a reverse phrase model where we're going backwards in this uh, progression. We're going um, into the fourths because that's the dominant, uh, the inverted dominant, I guess you can call it. So if, I'm looking at a bunch of music that ends 4-1 and or ends with a 5-1, but there's a 4-1 plagal cadence at the end. And I had my students, they actually unprompted started to discuss this and debate it, whether or not it was a plagal cadence or an authentic cadence. Um, like you look at the textbooks like Kaplan and others, they talk about the plagal cadence. This is just this 
you know, um, it's a it's a tag at the end of something. But mm-hmm. if it happens in so much, you know, mm-hmm. uh, contemporary gospel music or a lot of religious pieces that I've looked at, how can we just say, okay, all these things are just adding the same tag after everything? It has to be more significant than that. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that idea of having one to four as a relationship or having that be emphasized in certain cultures or certain groups means that if we try to plug these things in, um, like some jazz pieces, they might not end with a five and they might end with a tritone sub or something like that. Um, yes, the tritone mm-hmm. substitution is a substitution for the dominant. But then again, you don't actually have five. And if we look at that as imaginary five or something, say it's really a five, um, you know, in terms of like if you make a shanker graph or something, you could say that there's technically like an invisible five that you you can't hear or something. <laughs> And we try to put all this other stuff and it's like the, the hoops that people jump through to kind of, yeah. you know, pigeonhole right. this stuff and uh, mm-hmm. trying to find descending lines in the music and these uh, jazz pieces that it doesn't exist, you know, trying to do all this stuff. And it's like, why not just look at and that gets into what I was talking about when I say look at the music on its own terms. We look at post-tonal music like that. We don't say, OK, mm-hmm. everything is going to have a tone row. We know that this tone row might be the language of some. We know a time point system might be the language of some. Derived rows, derived series, five note rows. We have all these things, set theory. And when we look at tonal music, it's like all of a sudden, no, we have this one thing. It has to look at it. We have to look at it like this. And somehow it's like, like almost like a deformation or something we're taking away as opposed to just looking at it. Because it is tricky, right? We look at music that is tonal. How do we know it's tonal if we've been told all this time, all the music that come, came before it, even within jazz or other traditions, does 5-1? How do we make sense of something that we know, just like the progression I was playing, 1-4? It sounds tonal, period. Mm-hmm. So how do we make sense of that? And mm-hmm. that's why I said I advocate for uh, like contextual analysis or contextual tonal analysis, where we look at it in and of itself, what is it doing? Now, of course, as theorists, we want to come up with things that are more universal. Um, but again, within that tradition, it's like we have notes, we know they can belong to keys. And I feel like that's it. As far as the phrase model is really like almost like a a form sort of thing. And if you put everything into in terms of yeah. a form, it's not really so much harmonic as, as much as it's that, at least to me. So if we put it in that sort of uh, mm. box, you lose a lot in translation if we're just looking for that, like pieces that end on four, pieces that end on two, one, something like that. You lose a lot in your analysis if you try to just look at it through this sort of lens. No, totally. I like am supervising a project mm-hmm. right now on um, Korean music with mm-hmm. one of my students, and we just looked about talking about closure, you know. And it's funny, like even even an undergraduate that like they're so almost used to looking at everything through Mm -hmm. that lens that I'm like, get rid of the lens. Like, (laughs) you know, like you have to like almost purposely like take out Mm -hmm. the lens so you can actually look at the music, as you say, contextually, Mm -hmm. like on its own terms and just talk about closure in, in this music's terms. And it's really hard because it also, it also requires like an -hmm. investment like on my part, I'm not an expert on Korean mm-hmm. music, you know, so I have to like then put in the time to really, really figure out well, what is this music's mm-hmm. own terms. And like, mm-hmm. you know, that requires a lot of investment on, on all of our parts, you know, as, as analysts. Yeah. I heard uh, one of my professors, actually, uh, Professor Marvin, we were in a meeting and she mentioned like, this is something we need to do. And she understands also that uh, one of the biggest issues is inertia. Like we've been used to doing it a certain way for so mm-hmm. long. So people have examples after examples lined up to teach an augmented six chord. Mm-hmm. But how many times mm-hmm. have we used, like I was teach, I've been teaching augmented six chord. How many times we use, it don't mean a thing. The uh, John, yeah. uh, I mean, Duke Ellington or even like some Disney mm-hmm. music sometimes. But um, yeah. where yeah. we see all this stuff happening is like how many times do we go outside of uh, the tradition and it's, I don't even think it's necessarily laziness, but I think it's laziness when it comes to searching out that stuff because those same people, um, not including Professor Marvin, but some people that's more uh, hesitant about going out and really doing that kind of work, it's like you have to 
get into a whole different uh, mindset in order to be able to really make sense of all of these harmonies, all this stuff, because now you're dealing with something that it doesn't embody that framework anymore. Like, how do you mm-hmm. do that? Uh, years and years of teaching and learning and, and just growing within one tradition. How do you basically break outside of that? You just do it, honestly. Turn on the radio sometimes, <laughs> open right. up a fake book, right. just go through it the same way. If you, I feel like if you can look through, mm-hmm. you know, 500 pages or 500 measures of a Mahler symphony to find a form, I feel like you can look through a lead sheet, <laughs> a few lead sheets to find... Somebody mm-hmm. will listen to a few songs on XM radio or something like that just to find something. Mm-hmm. That worked for me. I was mainly classical, and I told my students, theory didn't really become that meaningful to me. It was always something I loved to do, but it didn't become that meaningful to me until I stepped outside classical music. So when I was in the practice rooms at Howard and I would hear people playing jazz or improvising or making up these chord progressions, doing neo-soul progressions, things like that, mm-hmm. And all those years of classical training did not help me figure out what was going on. Same thing you talked about, uh, Paul, about looking at what the guy was doing on the uh, Pretty Simple Music video. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. like, what does all this training and all this technical jargon, what does that really get you when it comes to like wider range of interest? It's like right. you have to go mm-hmm. out and search for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got to go on YouTube. And by the way, Richard, if you ever think about doing some YouTube videos on um, keyboard chords, I would definitely watch mm-hmm. them. Um. <laughs> okay. Hopefully somebody. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that you bring up a great point in that you know, we're looking at these students and these students are looking back at us and asking, why is this meaningful, right? Why mm-hmm. Why should I bother learning mm-hmm. this? And I, I have, I've had students ask me in class, like, why do we have to learn this, right? Or what? Like, mm-hmm. Oh, I have to learn secondary dominance. Oh, and so you have to kind of think about, well, why is it meaningful? It's not just meaningful because I say it's meaningful. That doesn't, yeah. <laughs> that, that doesn't fly. <laughs> um, it never did. And it certainly is not now with our, the students that we have now who are, who are, who are asking these types of tough questions. Mm-hmm. And so how do you kind of make, uh, how do, well, maybe we can talk about these uh, R&B and neo-soul songs, for example. Mm-hmm. How do you uh, use those songs in your classroom? Is there certain uh, lessons or topics that you find work well in bringing these uh, musics in that uh, your students uh, are more familiar with? Okay, so I would say a lot of times I start with uh, the gospel tradition. Howard has a big gospel choir. Uh, the school is predominantly African-American, so I can bring in those things, and I know that they'll recognize it. But I also make sure they know mm-hmm. that I will bring in, you know, Schubert. I will bring in Nirvana, whatever it is, because it's like I don't want to just say, okay, that you need to only study black music. Um, but seeing as how one black music has basically given rise to a lot of popular music forms out there, we could probably say most of them is like, yeah, we need to really, you know, pay attention to these contributions and celebrate this music. So sometimes what I do is like, if I'm looking at an example, um, for instance, I was looking at the summer, uh, summer Walker has a, a song playing games where London on the track is a producer. So it has these sort of sorts of like core progressions and let's make sure I have the right voicing here. So it's in B minor and then you get to this minor five and then this six and then this four. So there's sometimes when you get before the G chord, before the G chord and before the E minor chord, you get this dominant seven flat five built on B. You get this. So you get that two times, and it's basically the same sort of harmony. It's some type of B dominant seven chord. Well, when we're talking about two things, one, tonicizations, I can bring that up. And then later in the semester, I can bring that up when we start talking about um, taking fully diminished seven chords and reinterpreting them as some other thing because they have four different leading tones. We think about Schoenberg's uh, quote about fully diminished seven chords being vagrant harmonies, like they can go anywhere. So... The way that he used, because he actually uses the uh, the same producer in a, uh, in a in an EP a year later, he used the same sort of framework where he's taking a chord that can be reinterpreted as something else. So if we look at a B, for instance, a B uh, dominant seven flat nine, we take away the B; it's a fully diminished seven chord. Well, that D sharp can tonicize E, or we can look at the F sharp now as tonicizing G. So if we look at just that harmony. 
it can go to E minor if we look at it and put the F sharp on the bottom it can resolve to that G and then now B is something that is is fundamental to one harmony and then it becomes some extra note some type of non chord tone and something else um, so yeah just having those students and not just looking at one piece and saying, okay, we're just going to look at it in that way. I try to parse out everything that they're learning um, and try to bring it into different discussions. So if we're talking about uh, common tone diminished seven chords or reinterpreting diminished seven chords as having the other, uh, other notes as being the root of the chord, potential leading tones, I try to do things like that. Or there's a for, uh, lament bass is another example. And this is something I will probably you know, bring more into the fray uh, later on in their semester or their uh, music theory sequence, but it's a song misunderstood where the entire bass line is basically the same thing that you learn in, um, in any sort of tonal theory class where you have this line. So when you hear that one to five stepwise motion, you might want to hear it as like... teach it that way we want to hear it but when he does it yeah. first he gives you a seventh chord really an 11 and then it goes to so you get all these sorts of different harmonies um and that is really where i really deviate away from uh the sort of like the the general tried and true paradigm of how you teach these things um I feel like once a student really understands fundamentals, diatonicism, and I mean they know it like the back of their hand, they understand it like this, uh, like it's their alphabets. Mm -hmm. If they get that, most mm -hmm. troubles that students have beyond, you know, the second half or the second part of the freshman year will be gone. But most of the time, even if they have, mm -hmm. you know, they can do it that speed at which they're able to do that. Imagine if a student in fifth grade was still having trouble spelling the word dog. Well, we do that with a lot of students from sophomore years. Like we don't really like hone in on the fact like they don't have that dexterity when it comes to fundamentals. So when mm -hmm. I want to teach a student that progression that from the uh, lucky days misunderstood. So if I want to teach them something like that, one, I teach them lament bass, great. They know it diatonically. But how do I explain how he uses those inner harmonies? How do I explain how he goes from an E minor 9 to an uh, E flat major 9? How do I explain that to them? If I say, okay, one exercise I do is here's a note, uh, here's a note, uh, A or I don't know, D sharp or D flat. All right. How many chords can you think of that uses that? How many sus chords can you think of? How many one chords, four chords? How many minor triads, minor seven chords, being the seventh of a chord, being the nine of a chord? How many chords can you think of that just... So all of those harmonies that just use that one note. And having students do that sort of exercise, sometimes once a week or something like that, I try to have them do that. Um, Reharmonize hot cross buns. Little things like that. Just try to think of how many chords can you think of. And that's what goes back to that video you were talking about at the top uh, of the talk. That's really what they're doing. They're trying to think. They're thinking functionally. Um, they're thinking functionally, but they're also thinking of how many different chords can you? Uh, how many different chords can you incorporate into this just using that one note? Yeah. So yeah, it's a lot that goes into it, but it's like as I go along, I will make sure I bring in pieces um, multiple times to kind of express different sort of functions within it. It makes me think of like the E minor uh, Chopin Prelude. Um, it's all about linear oh, yeah. voice leading, and I mean, I'm, I, I'm thinking I have the I have your PowerPoint here pulled up. I'm looking at the misunderstood. Yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. exactly right. And mm -hmm. it's all about this same note or similar notes, but reharmonize, reharmonize, yep. and you have those same types of linear voice leadings happening in this neo soul music as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, 
And that was something a friend of mine told me that uh, Ben Baker, who wrote a really great paper, he looked at uh, a cyclic approach to Robert Glass's music. If you ever get a chance, check out that article. Um, I think it's in Theory and Analysis, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, uh, he told me that, you know, while uh, I was giving a talk, someone, you know, mentioned like the concept of planning or something where you can keep like sliding or you keep a voice and you do all these things. And I think that's a great part to us to l notice that there's sort of this linear voice lead and there's one voice and there's other things happening below it. Or you can look at it as possibly having um, not just a linear voice leading aspect, but you also have other things that's going on beneath that with the with regards to the general harmony. Um, yeah, it's it's. It's a tricky thing, right? Because you have this sort of music that doesn't adhere to these principles, but it uses the same sort of framework, like a lament, yeah. uh, a bass lament, a chromatic descent. It's things that you normally don't mm -hmm. associate with happy sounds, happy music, anything like that. So we can still connect mm -hmm. these ideas, but um, I think it takes work. Like mm -hmm. I said at the beginning, it takes a, it takes like looking Absolutely. for this stuff and not saying, well, it doesn't sound like the way, you know, these other composers did it. So, <laughs> you know, put this in the appendix. It's like, no, it's, it works. Mm -hmm. um, it just works differently. Um, that's why I said look at it on its own mm -hmm. terms. Um, even if you don't look at the word lament, uh, it is still a descending bass line that goes down to fourth and it comes back up to the same note. Um, we can analyze the lyrics. We can talk about those things. That's, what, that's a good thing about a lot of popular music. We can talk about the content of the songs as well. Same way we do with mm -hmm. Schubert Leader. Um, it's there. Exactly. Exactly. I think one of the best things that happened to me in my teaching career is that um, several years ago, I actually, Paul <laughs> was teaching our jazz theory class and uh, he got a full-time job and moved on. And uh, I ended up over over a few semesters, I ended up needing to take over that class. We just couldn't find someone who was the right fit to teach it. And I finally was like, I'll do it for one semester. And uh, until we can, you know, get someone hired in. And Ben is laughing right now because he knows that I have now taught that class something like 16 times. Um, and I love and it. And it's it one and of my, really <laughs> I do. Humble, and I, um, it's one of my favorite classes that I teach, but nothing has taught me more than that class because I, I had loved jazz my whole life, but I had never really studied it. And one of the first things that I did was sit down and basically analyze the real book, um, just lead sheet after lead sheet. And I discovered um, it's got a lot of the same tricks as, you know, traditional tonal music, but it also has its own language, its own way of doing things, its own way of going from key to key, its own set of um, kind of typical relationships and what you're going to expect to see. And um being immersed in that has really helped me go back and teach the other stuff. It, it kind of has worked the other yes, way around. Definitely. And that's, that's the best way. I think that's been, I'm so glad that I ended up agreeing to that one semester and then, you know, getting to live with that music for a much longer period of time. It's been great. Yeah. I it's totally agree. My latest thing has been um, listening to Lord Kitch, who's one of the founders of steel pan in okay. Trinidad. And I was just in my office hour, and I was introducing one of my students to Lord Kitch. I was like, this is Lord Kitch. And uh, I said, sometimes it's hard to get scores for steel pan music. And then I was like, honestly, for lots of marginalized composers, it's really difficult to get um, mm -hmm. a lot of the scores or even uh, recordings, you know. And my student was like, what do you mean by marginalized composers? Uh. <laughs> and I was just mm -hmm. like well, where do I start? You know, it's just like, there's so much, you know, and it's like, sometimes there's not even awareness of like the fact that certain groups, certain musics are being yes. marginalized, you know, that's not, there's not even an awareness of, of that. And I thought that was just mind blowing for me like that, that moment, you know, it was just, it was mm -hmm. just crazy. Especially when the music is such a big part of a cultural group's existence. Uh, I think music period, no matter where you go, is, is a big part, but yeah, to, to open up a theory book and to not see a lot of this stuff in there. Um, yeah, it might be hard mm -hmm. to put a song that has just like one bass note the entire song. <laughs> yeah, it might be hard to, you know, talk about that and, and to really spend a whole uh, a chunk of class doing that. But 
it's still a worthwhile experience to acknowledge the existence of it and to acknowledge the existence of a bunch of other mm-hmm. things out there. And it, like I said, it doesn't even just have to be, uh, I look at R&B, neo soul, gospel music, um, but it can be anything else. It can be Haitian compa, it can be salsa, merengue, it can be reggae, it can be Peking opera. Like it's a bunch of other things that um, mm. people get into. Like I've never been the biggest fan of like, uh, like uh, rock or anything like that, but there's a lot of music out there. Some songs I have and I actually enjoy listening to them. Uh, maybe not the entire genre as a whole, but yeah, there's things out there. It's just like you said, um, Jennifer, it takes that first step of actually just going out and saying, okay, I want to mm-hmm. get outside my comfort zone and actually try that. Because the first time you get up, if you've only, especially if you aren't, let's say you aren't a black person and you're teaching theory and you want to bring in a Cardi B example, you want to bring in some other artists mm-hmm. and you might not feel comfortable the first time you do that. Um, doesn't mean you can't bring that example in. Maybe some lyrics mm-hmm. you might not be able to say and things like that, but just period, being able to jump outside the box, even for myself, if I bring in salsa or something like that, it might not be something that I'm the most well-versed in, but it is something I can at least acknowledge and, and talk about it uh, again on its own terms. Um, and when I say that, a lot of times, if it's tonal music, it's probably going to have some characteristics that we've seen before. So when the music doesn't do 5-1, it avoids, oftentimes, that's probably like a fourth characteristic from the question earlier of what happens with a lot of this music and R&B and Neo Soul. It's almost like this avoidance of five, hmm. like purposefully. And hmm. when you go backwards in the uh, in terms of not the phrase model, but just starting on one and not going up thirds, if you go backwards thirds, you go to six, you go to four, you go to two. And you have to basically keep doing that in order to get to five. And by the time you've gotten, you know, a few thirds back, it's just like, okay, we can just work with this, this sort of third. And if you ever get a chance to see, uh, again, Ben Baker's paper where he shows how we can kind of build like a, uh, like a cycle. It's a, it's a the three, four cycle. Um, or yeah, the IC three, four. And you basically just, yeah, I don't want to get too in the weeds with this. <laughs> it's, this, it's, this, is, this is a podcast about theory and theory pedagogy. You can nerd out as much as you want. Okay, cool. <laughs> so yeah. the alternating uh, three, four cycles, that, uh, basically think of a minor third, major third. So if you basically yeah. do that, um, and you'll basically get back around to, like so they start on zero. We can look at it as pitch classes. You'll have 24 pitch class by the time you're finished. And you'll have a series of, I always looked at it, and I bring it up because I was looking at Robert Glass's music as mainly functioning as, like, he'll have a progression that's like, uh, like. So basically it's A minor, F sharp minor, and then D minor. So if we're looking at that, we might look at that F sharp minor chord as being borrowed um, from the uh, from the major, which is not one that we normally talk about when we talk about modal mixture. We always talk about minor uh, minor mm-hmm. chords being input into the major rather than the other way around, um, and it's for a good reason. Sometimes, like it sounds a lot of times uh, like it's modal, like the Avengers theme. So it sounds more like it's uh, Dorian sometimes than it does anything else. Whereas a major piece. So that minor four, it doesn't really give you a feeling of being modal. Um, yep. Koji Kondo does that a who? lot too with the Dorian sound. Koji Kondo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Koji Kondo. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's that, that sort of sound. Just For trying sure. to figure out what's going on. Um, in that so yeah going back to the concept of thirds if we look at that as one going to sharp six minor going to minor four which is diatonic to the uh the original key we started in we could also look at those if we build seventh chords a c e c e g and then after that if we kind of uh like shift that we can get f sharp a c sharp e and we retain those two of the notes from the other chord mm-hmm. And if we looked at it in terms of that cycle, it would have been A or E, C, A, F, D. But if we shift those notes around it, we get instead of 
we can get uh, we can get that sound. And I think he calls it a slide because it, you know, by building these thirds out, it's almost like you shift every other one up or down a half step. So instead of getting which you wouldn't get if you just went around that circle, you have to kind of shift things. So um, that's a lot to bring up in the middle of a theory class, that sort of way of looking at it. But it is, I like this model because what it does is it, when you get into the article, it really accounts for how we get, uh, at least Robert Glasper, how he gets his, uh, his uh, melodic lines, improvisational lines, because mm-hmm. he shows how this sort of structure gives you upper extensions. And if you move by thirds, you get a lot of common tones. Yeah. So that sort of idea, just bringing that mm-hmm. back into the fray when, when we're trying to look at how these uh, harmonies sort of work together. And yeah, it's, it's so much out there where we could talk about this stuff for hours and then someone else will come up with another two chord mm-hmm. progression mm-hmm. tomorrow. And it's like we could <laughs> sit there and do that all day long. So. Right. Yeah. We're kind of in the, we're in the midst of all this creation. You know, that's one of the benefits of analyzing Mozart. It's like we're, we have history Mm -hmm. to kind of help us. Um, It's not Mm -hmm. being done right in the moment. And so that's also really exciting, you know, to think that there's, we can be analyzing these Mm -hmm. musics that are happening that are doing new things all the time. Um, I wanted to kind of touch also on something that you mentioned in your bio is that one of your kind of goals as a professional in your personal uh, life is to make music theory more accessible uh, to and inclusive of people of color. So there are kind of two parts of that kind of statement. There's the accessibility and the inclusiveness. Um, and so uh, could you talk a little bit about kind of those two um, kind of streams in, the, in uh, your statement there? Yeah, so... It was someone, I, I can't remember his name, it was Michael something, but he was the head of NAFME up until 2015 or 2016. And during a uh, board meeting or some type of meeting, again, this is NAFME, um, he said that they, they made a remark about the board not having any black members or anything like that. And he you know, said something offhand that was already problematic enough about how they don't make the list, people vote them in or something like that. But then he said that he made a comment about saying that blacks and Latinos um, normally aren't good at theory and they don't have keyboard skills and things like that. And then when he got called out on it, he kind of doubled down and got upset. And then eventually, like all people in those positions, he had to resign. So it was just this general idea. When we talk about accessibility, there's this idea outside of our own communities where it's like, okay, those people don't do theory because they don't look like the people who make classical music, right? So even though the music is very good, it's you know great music, whether it's gospel or merengue, anything like that, a lot of those traditions aren't written down. We, uh, that is something that is a thing. It's not written down. Does it mean that it doesn't use these chords and these melodic structures, these formal structures? No, it just means that the way it's codified is not the same way that we look, look at it with uh, Haydn Symphony or something. So when it comes to the first part of that, when I say accessibility, making sure those people have access to it, um, making sure those people have access to music theory courses or just talking about the stuff in there, not to say, okay, you need this in order to validate your music, because I even put that in the beginning of my dissertation yeah. proposal um, defense that me talking about gospel music is not to legitimize it. It's just there so we can at least make it part of these discussions when it comes to music theory. Really, it's to legitimize music mm-hmm. theory if we want to really look at it like that, because mm-hmm. right now it is very limited as far as its scope. So having more, yeah, having more people come, uh, not just more people, but having it be more welcoming. And I guess that gets into the inclusion um the accessibility and inclusion Mm. part and not just saying like, okay, we're going to have, you know, we don't have enough uh, black faculty members teaching theory. You can have, if we make all of them black, that's not going to solve anything because they're going to be teaching the same stuff. Um, So that's why it's, it's kind of broken up into multiple parts. There's levels to it because yeah, a lot of times when we talk about diversity and things like that, we're talking about diversifying uh, the people who participate in the tradition rather than uh, diversifying the actual t- uh, tradition or our approach to that thing, mm-hmm. which is basically music. So when we go into a classroom, mm-hmm. having not just, you know, 
an extra uh, uh, Sammy Coleridge tail example, which would be great. But that's not the only thing that we need to do. We know have him, have Florence Price, have a bunch of other black composers, mm-hmm. William Levi, uh, uh, Levi Dawson, a bunch of them, Grant Steele. But also, what about the things that happen outside of classical tradition? The things that aren't uh, readily perceptible because they aren't on paper. Um, doing those things so when students come in, they see themselves. Because I was just watching something about uh, NCAA women's uh, uh, basketball and that whole scandal and everything with the, the workout room. And they started talking about how um, when when young girls started to see themselves more and more in college sports, you start to see an uptick in the amount of young girls wanting to actually participate in those sports. So it's the same thing with mostly everything else. If you don't see yourself in that position, Mm -hmm. you don't really know like it's possible for you to do that and you don't feel like it's valued. And the last part of it is that I feel like the more sinister thing that happens when when we start to exclude people from this or we look at people as if they aren't capable or smart enough, because that's basically what they're saying a lot of times, that music theory is on this pedestal if you can't do it then the music isn't sophisticated or something what happens is beyond that being wrong is that people in these very same communities because i've heard this when i was a student at howard is like music theory isn't for us that we aren't capable Hmm. of doing that and when those very same communities start to believe these stereotypes i believe that's the worst part because you can solve all the problems and get Mm -hmm. these people out of these positions of power and do everything but if a whole contingent of people believe that their whole cultural group isn't smart enough or worthy enough Mm. of this sort of study or to be able to do something on this level, that to me is probably the worst part of most of that stuff. So trying to shift that narrative and bring more people into the fray when it comes not just to the examples we give, but the people who are uh, teaching the stuff, the types of music we study, Mm -hmm. everything is, is super important. That's awesome. That's great. I, I teach at a largely at a women's university. And so like thinking about women examples by women and, you know, even having a theory textbook that's we use the Clendenny Marvin, you know, authored by two women, like, like, this is for you too. Gotcha. Like, it's not just, you know, just for white guys. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been wonderful talking with you, Richard. Before we kind of finish mm-hmm. up, though, we like to do a little kind of rapid fire kind of question session with, with our guests. And well, each, this is a question that you have not been prompted on. Um, so just kind of off the cuff question, off the cuff response. Uh, Jen, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, favorite topic to teach in written theory? Ooh. Maybe common tone diminished seven chords. All right. Oh, yeah, those are great. Yeah, people are always afraid of those. That's a first. Nobody's ever people said that. People are always afraid of those. <laughs> so I, I found that this, I've, I put it on PowerPoints, like this is the most terrifying chord in music theory. <laughs> Students hate the, trying to, you know, parse it out. But yeah, I really like getting into it and see students' reaction when they finally figure out what's going on. Awesome. Awesome. All right, I'll go. Um... This, this is one I do all the time. One six four or five six four. One six four. All right. <laughs> Yay! Yeah. Um, That's me too. We can recognize one six four because it's funny we do that with five mm-hmm. six four to five three, but we don't do it for passing six fours. Mm. Uh, Grant or pedal yeah, six Yeah, and I get it. Passing six fours doesn't <laughs> hold the base, so of course we don't. Like credential six fours, really, like we look at it as prolonged and dominant, blah blah blah, but. It is two distinct harmonies. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you lose a, I feel like you lose, you gain something in that, but you also lose something sure. in that. So, yeah. All right. And then Ben. All right. I'm asking for one piece of advice to a beginning music theory teacher. Somebody's about to walk in, first class. What do you tell them? <laughs> wow. Be open-minded. Be very, very open-minded. I think when you do that for the first time, it's easy to fall into a routine. You open up a textbook, a workbook. You put out some worksheets, things like that. But sometimes you might throw out a lesson in the middle of it. I've done that in the past, and they've been great lessons (laughs) afterwards. So, yeah, be very, very Mm -hmm. not flexible, but comfortable in that flexibility to know that when you just when you throw those things out, you can just riff and talk with some students. Maybe you might not get anything done that day, but 
you'll gain something in that discussion and what you learn about yourself and your students through that. So yeah, just be very comfortable and open-minded to know that that textbook is not God. There we go. That That's a tweet right there. The totally. textbook is not God. I like totally. that. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love it. So as we uh, kind yeah. of wrapping up, uh, maybe we can close with letting uh, us know some of the projects or things you're working on. Um, and then uh, you you mentioned that you're not on any social media, but if someone wants to find you, and if you want, of course, to be found, how uh, how could how could someone uh, find you? Um, they can find me through my email address. Honestly, uh, my friends are trying to push me into creating social media, whether it's a YouTube channel, Instagram page, or anything, but still reluctant on doing that. But they can reach me at my email address uh, right now. It is. R as in Richard, and it's my last name. So R D as in Delta, E S I N as in November, O R D as in Delta at gmail.com. Um, if anyone wants to reach out or talk about anything music theory related, I actually got a couple of people that have been emailing me since that talk. Um, so, yeah. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We'll be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.